Hi, you're on RN. I'm Amanda Van Sone. Welcome back to Counterpoint. Do you have one of those devices at home which allows you by voice to do any number of things? I don't because I don't like the idea that it may just be eavesdropping. I'm so out of touch. The world is collecting my data from shopping, from my internet use, and it can all be rolled up into metadata. And artificial intelligence can then be used to work out what motivates humans to think one way or another. And China is at the forefront of it all. If you know how to influence thinking, you can change the world your way. Christmas is around the corner, and wow, do we have an idea for you. We interviewed former Governor of the Reserve Bank, Ian McFarlane. He's written a book of shortish bibliographic essays on 10 remarkable Australians who've essentially been forgotten. Who knew bankers could be that interesting? They're each great stories. Nunchi is the Korean art of being alert and reading the room. I'd never heard of it, but it sounds really smart. Possibly good fun and definitely worth doing. But first, soft power used to be that, soft. A cultural exchange here, some foreign aid there. But now, soft power is toughening up. The Belt and Road Initiative is an example, as are trade agreements. It's a tougher world out there. With all the discussions of foreign affairs in the world, the big powers, who's getting bigger, whose power is waning, you often hear discussions about soft diplomacy, soft power. That means not guns and missiles and aeroplanes and submarines and all that sort of stuff. It means everything else that you can do. But soft power is smarting up and being used a lot more lately. And now it's a really interesting topic. Zaki Lady is Professor of International Relations at Sciences Po in Paris, and he joins us now from Paris. Zaki Lady, welcome to Counterpoint. Thank you. Well, we used to talk about you know, how much military power someone had, as if that was the big deal, and not so much about soft power. And then when we started to talk about soft power, it was very much in terms of, well, very soft things that people didn't take a lot of notice of. But that's all changed, hasn't it? Yeah, this is the sequence of the hardening of the global situation, the world in which competition among powers is stronger. And I think that we are leaving the shores of a purely interdependent world and sailing toward the world in which interdependence, economic interdependence, is deeply related to power politics. And the thing that what we noticed during these last five years or so is the return to power politics related with the rise of China, the much more aggressive posture taken by Russia, and of course now the American strategy conducted by Mr. Trump. And therefore, traditional soft powers, such as Australia, but also as Europe, uh, squeezed. And this is, of course, something which is very new and extremely important for those who precisely are not traditional hard powers. So the element that you refer to is that those hard powers 
are using their traditional instrument of soft power in order to enhance their global position. And, of course, one of the main weapons which has been weaponized, and you are familiar with that in Australia, is trade. So that's what happened during the last year since Trump took power. And those instruments are more and more used for purposes of hard power and yeah. leverage. Yeah, look, I understand what you're saying. Is part of the difficulty then, we talk about the rise of China, but if they had a similar legal system to us, to the West that is, a similar set of values, similar agreement to a, a world order, yeah. might there be less of an issue? I mean, in one sense, to deal with a country that is so dramatically increasing its economic and its hard power... Yeah, but, yeah, but a country yeah, yeah. that just doesn't agree with the same set of values, the international order, etc., etc., you have yeah. to use every weapon you can. And if you don't want to use your hard weapons, that is, go to physical war, yeah. you're forced into these other use of these other weapons. Yeah, right. There was a filter in power politics, and the filter was multilateralism. So we are confronted to a situation in which multilateralism is losing its attractiveness. And what is very new is that one of the main stakeholders in the multilateralist order, namely the United States, is less and less interested in multilateralism. And multilateralism was a filter in a sense that it equalized the power among powers, okay? Yeah. Because you have a certain number of rules and standards to which you have to comply with. All countries have to comply with. And now we have the largest power in the world, which is retreating from this international order in order to enhance its leverage on a purely bilateral basis. And you are right in saying that the middle countries like Australia, Canada, Europe, used to share with the United States this belief and support to the multilateral order, and still more the case, because we are in a very unique situation in which the largest country in the world, namely the United States, is considering its allies as a burden. This is the new element. And the United States, in their relation with their allies, are weaponizing their soft power instruments. It's not only trade, it's also currency, the use of the dollar. The extraterritorial power of the dollar is hurting a lot countries, for example, European countries who do not comply with American sanctions. Or you have the Cloud Act, which is a source of concern for privacy in Europe, and so on. So you have a large array of let's say, instruments which are used. And once again, the problem is that the traditional filter of all that, which is the multilateral system, is weakened. You're on RN. This is Counterpoint. I'm Amanda Vanstein. I'm talking with Zaki Lady, who is Professor of International Relations at Sciences Po in Paris. And we're talking about the rise of soft power. Well, you look at the US and you point out that the average import tariff rate of 6.5 is yeah. up from just 1.53 years yeah. ago. Now, that begs the question whether this is a short-term response because of the Trump administration and with a change of administration, we could expect 
a return back to multilateralism? In other words, is this a function of Trump more than anything else? Or is well, it a longer-term thing in which he just happens to be the first player? My answer would be qualified in a sense that you're right, that Trump pushed things too far, probably that another administration will have a much more moderate stance vis-a-vis multilateralism. Now, I think that, it, frankly, it would be a big mistake to consider that the American stance is already related to Mr. Trump. If you look closely to the grievances vis-a-vis the WTO, I mean, it started under the previous administration. The blocking of the appellate body of the WTO started with the previous administration. But, of course, the problem with this administration is that it is totally unpredictable. And, moreover, that you have what the president says and what the Department of State or the Pentagon does on the field, which makes the situation extremely difficult to decipher from at least a European point of view. So you are right in a sense that we may return to something different. Now, when something is broken, it's very difficult to repair it. So we need to be cautious and take steps in order to promote or to defend, for example, multilateralism in trade. And this is the responsibility of countries like the European Union or the CPTPP countries, for example. My proposal was to have a sort of political declaration between the EU and the CPTPP countries on multilateralism in sending signal to both the United States and China, signaling to the United States that we will stand for multilateralism in trade and saying also to China that promoting and defending multilateralism, I mean, maintaining the status quo, which is also the Chinese position. Fair enough. Now, let's look to one of the other areas of soft power, and that's the weaponisation of technology. The debate over 5G and Huawei is just all over the world. I understand that. And certainly in Australia, there's a significant concern about the capacity of China to use technology to know what everyone is doing when and where. So the weaponisation of technology, am I being a bit one-eyed when I say, look, China started that because they've had companies go there to build and then the companies have found that their technology has been taken. It hasn't been an easy country to deal with in terms of sharing technology. And then when you move to the higher end technology that they've got, there's not necessarily transparency, let's put it that way, between countries as to what they have. And in that sense, I just think it's a normal human response to say, well, we're going to be very careful. Yeah. In the 5G debate, which actually was launched by the tough stance taken by the Australian government in regard to 5G, I think it's the Australian who discovered the problem and passed the information to New Zealand and the UK and the United States. So in the 5G, it's a typical illustration because you have the convergence of two problems, a technological problem and a political one. Yeah. The technological one in a sense that the reach and the implication of the use of the 5G is much, much more important and significant than the use of the previous generations. Okay? Yes. I mean, so the huge change, because it affects all activities, actually, related to the Internet of Things, for example. So the capacity to disrupt 
extremely important, and the cost is absolutely huge. So you are not just interrupting or hacking a mobile device. You are hacking, I mean, virtually the whole economy, okay? So the stakes are high, much higher. Second, the possibility for opening back doors is increased by the fact that the difference which existed previously between hardware is much more limited. So the capacity to enter the system through software is much more important. And, of course, the third is related to the nature of the Chinese regime and the obligation which is made to the SOEs or non-SOEs to cooperate with the government yes. and the Communist Party. So there is a problem for, let's say, for democracies to protect themselves. If you add to that the fact that the Chinese are in a position of a virtual monopoly on the 5G. So we have all very good reasons to worry. And actually, that's what the French president said recently in his interview to The Economist, in which he said that those issues have to be dealt by governments and not only by telecom operators. Because it's a huge security issue. Mm. So we are here confronted in a situation where the notion of the divide between hard power and soft power is becoming totally irrelevant. Well, Zaki Lady, I think we can happily say to our listeners that they can stop worrying about submarines and aircraft carriers and missiles. Well, not stop worrying about them, but worry a lot less about them and start... Start worrying about the other stuff. It's much more important. Zaki Lady, thank you for joining us from Paris. Well, soft power might be toughening up, but you know what? So is China. Who do you think's watching you? Who's watching what you look at on the internet? Are you being watched when you walk down the street? When you buy something in the shop? The answer, if you lived in China, would be absolutely yes. And the answer might be yes to a lot of those questions if you live anywhere else. Because of the spread of Chinese technology, software and hardware, it's a real issue. Dr Samantha Hoffman is an analyst at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute's International Cyber Policy Centre. She's written a paper about this and she's going to share the lowdown with us now. Samantha Hoffman, welcome to Counterpoint. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, I went to China a number of times, and once I went to the, what was it called, the Heavenly Wall or something, I don't know, it looked like a wedding cake, where Uh there's a round wall, and you can go to one side of the wall and whisper something at the wall, and someone can go around the other side of the wall, that is, across the diameter of a circle, and they Mm -hmm. can hear what you're saying. And I remember being told that the Chinese have been always very, very good at anything to do with sound. Now, you're not just talking about sound, but I just mentioned that by way of pointing out that it's not new for the Chinese to be up on technology. Mm. What would you say is where they are now with their technology? I think the the big point and where there's a distinction between what the Chinese Communist Party is doing versus what tech companies globally are doing, because it's not something completely unique to the PRC, is that there is a very clear intent to use technology to shape, manage and control society within and outside of China's borders. 
in order to support the party's power. So where they are with that, they have the ideas and they have the intent and they have the ability to collect mass data on a global scale and they're developing the abilities to process that and turn it into information that influences their ability to do propaganda, their ability to do state security, as well as many other things. Is it right that they can collect the equivalent of about 20 billion photos on Facebook? I've just written a paper with the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, Mm -hmm. and I used as a case study a company that is controlled ultimately by the Central Propaganda Department Mm -hmm. of the Chinese Communist Party. And that company claims that at least using one of its platforms, that it can collect the equivalent of 20 billion Facebook photos a year. Now, it's not just that company that's involved in bulk data collection globally. So the volume is surely a lot higher than that. What stands out in this particular case is that by default of the ownership of the company that I highlight, it is information that's ultimately going back to the Chinese Communist Party, the same party that has 1.5 million Uyghurs in prison on the basis of their identity right now, the same party that's involved in the brutal crackdown in Hong Kong against protesters. So that's the party that controls this data that I've found in this report. People like internet shopping. Do you buy stuff off the internet? I do. Have you bought from Alibaba? No, no, I actually don't use Alibaba to purchase things. But what's interesting is the company that I've highlighted in my report has a relationship with Alibaba Cloud and anything translated through their network, which includes Taobao, which is Alibaba's shopping arm, ultimately is data that's collected by this company. We interviewed someone on this program about the big day in China that I think it's for singles to buy stuff. I'm not sure, Mm -hmm. but anyway, it's a big shopping day. And how Alibaba have not only using the internet, but now got some stores actually where you can go in and... They've got facial recognition in these stores such that you can go in and walk up and touch, I don't know, a green coat Mm. and a salesperson come up and say, I don't think green is the colour, but red's a really good colour, isn't it? Because they can see on the computer who you are Mm -hmm. and what you've bought in the past from Alibaba. I mean, that is frightening. I don't know specifically about that case. I'll have to read about it. But you think about it, and this is something that a lot of online retailers are doing. Take the CCP in in China out of the picture. And this is something that online retailers are doing in general to collect data and improve in advertising to target particular individuals. Personally, I swear that I've had a conversation about something, and then the next day I see it popping up on my YouTube suggested mm-hmm. list or on my Amazon suggested list. And so it's not limited to the PRC. The difference here no. is the intent. And so what's happening and what I demonstrate in the paper is that technology that provides services. The company that's providing that service is required to collect data in order to do that. So in the case that I highlight in this report, and I think it's really useful that I've chosen a company that isn't clearly working on surveillance. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not a hike vision that's doing surveillance cameras. And it's not uh, Huawei that, you know, at this point, I'm sure most people have heard of. It's a company that is pretty obscure, but they work with companies like Huawei and Alibaba and and others. They have strategic cooperation agreements, which expands their ability to collect data. But what's interesting is that they provide language translation services. That's what they do. They do machine translation. And in order to make those translations more perfect, they say that they cover at least 65 languages in 200 countries and regions, which is basically saying that they're global and they're covering everywhere. (laughs) And more than that, as I understand what you've said, using AI, they can basically lip read 
video that's taken. So they don't actually have to listen to what you're saying. So they have a couple things that they're doing. They've got facial recognition and they have voice recognition that they're doing. And then what I suggested is that they have a relationship with a company called Hyun Data. And Hyun Data is a company, again, that maybe most people haven't heard of that is involved with police departments across China. Yep. And one of the products that they have is to read lips off of, say, surveillance video where there was no sound recorded, but they're able to read the lips and try to generate sound from that. So what I suggested in the report is that one thing that GTCom does is they have a product that auto-generates text captioning for videos in multiple languages simultaneously. So if you have the imagination to see where this is going with a company yeah. that they could have a strategic cooperation agreement with, that could be very powerful. One thing that I need to point out here is that this company states directly that it's involved in state security. So you don't even have to leap too far in your imagination of where this is going because literally the company says what they want to do. And so that's, I think, what's really powerful about this case. But you think that we have, for instance, high vision cameras that are deployed at police departments all over the world. I know in the UK, for instance, a lot of police departments use them. And I'm fairly certain that some government offices around Australia were using them as well. And you couple that with facial recognition, you couple that with voice recognition, you couple that with things that this company is doing with data that, for instance, connect people to each other, begin to understand preferences. Not only are you able to use that in intelligence work, but you're also able to use that to influence a society. You understand how people think, you understand how they talk. The company talks about using technology, GAN technology, to create more perfect translations. And while that doesn't indicate that the company is involved in the generation of deep fakes, that is the same technology that is used for that. And given that that's a company that's directly controlled by the propaganda department, we at least have to ask questions about what their intents could be. Look, the mind is opened every time you read something about this mm-hmm. sort of thing. You're on RN, this is CounterPoint, and I'm talking with Dr Samantha Hoffman. She's written a piece for the Australian Strategic Policy Institute the International Cyber Policy Centre, called Engineering Global Consent. And if you're not frightened now, you will be in the end. Now, you know, you very clearly lay out the relationship between GTCOM and the Chinese Communist Party, and yet their CEO says that they are an independent company. It's a bit of a farce, isn't it, really? <laughs> so he says that in English language, but then as soon as you start searching in the Chinese language sources, it's very clear very quickly that the company is state-controlled. And I was expecting to find something similar to its business model. And when I came across it for the first time, I thought, well, I've not heard of this company before. What is it? And I just did a quick search, and immediately I came up with job advertisements on government websites that listed it as a state-owned enterprise. Mm. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. And then the more I dug deep into it, and again, it didn't take really long to initially figure out what the links were. It just was that it's controlled by a a state-owned enterprise that is directly controlled by the propaganda department, was really easy to find in Chinese language. In English, it's not, but... Beyond that, for instance, you can find visits that senior leaders are making to both the parent state-owned enterprise and GTCOM itself, which indicate the level of importance that the company and its parent companies have to key party leaders. And if you do a little bit of digging in Chinese, then it's actually always easy to figure that part out. Is it fair to say that the Chinese government recognised that There's a serious risk to their power that comes from outside. In other words, let me rephrase that and put that another way around. Are people in the West being stupid 
if they think that all of this technology and surveillance is being applied to Chinese citizens. It's fair enough, isn't it, to say that's not the case. They're actually out to spread this way beyond China, way beyond, so that they can understand what everyone else is doing and, through that, promote themselves. Yeah, the idea, and I think this is where the PRC is a different actor than, say, Russia, it's the idea that threats to the Chinese Communist Party and its power can emerge from outside of China and can affect the domestic politics. So I think sometimes there's a mistake, certainly both among academia and policymakers for years, really, to think that the party's primary concern is domestic political security, therefore external security problems aren't as big of a priority. But I think what's missed in that analysis is the fact that the party says that their version of national security starts with its own political security. And that's backed up by ideological security. And what that means is that ideas are a huge threat to the party. And where do they have the ability to organize more effectively? Well, that's not inside the PRC's borders. And so that's one thing. And then the party describes its ability to shape, manage, and control its operating environment globally before threats emerge as an ideal security in a way that's not, you know, fundamentally different from the way that we might think about security. What's different is the ideology and the politics behind that. Yeah. And it's not about China's security. It's not about the Chinese people's interests. It's about the Chinese Communist Party's interests above everything else. Yeah. And that's what's different. Okay. Now, let's get to some of the policy recommendations. I know you want to strengthen data privacy laws and who could disagree with that, although I just have a nagging doubt the degree to which we're able to ascertain when people are breaching them. Mm -hmm. But that's another issue. You want us to keep monitoring our transparency laws, that is the Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme. You think that all needs mm -hmm. to be kept up to date. And we need more data literacy now. How do we get that? How do we get more kids coming out of school, going into university, understanding all of this stuff? Actually, I think that recommendation might be the easier one to implement. And that's one of the more clear, you know, short-term solutions mm. versus some mm -hmm. of the others that I think are longer term. But I think a lot of people think that privacy is having a webcam cover or having strong passwords and different passwords. Yeah. And that's part of it. But it's also making sure that people understand how little incremental pieces of information about their life can add up into a much bigger picture about them and about their society. At the individual level, you know, if you take an Uber and you're booking hotels online and you're booking flights online and you've purchased things online, that creates quite an image of you, your patterns. And a lot of people might think, yeah, but I'm not that interesting. But you are to an actor who's trying to influence your society and you're a member of that society. Mm -hmm. So then are you completely in control of the way that your decisions are being influenced at that point. Or maybe you aren't no matter what, but who are you comfortable with influencing them? Is it going to be an authoritarian regime that currently is committing what I would call cultural genocide in Xinjiang? Or would you be more comfortable with another actor? And that's a question that we need to be asking in okay. our societies. Look, one final question. I think this is a great paper and I won't say a brave piece of research, but not everybody is happy to, you know, go out and pursue this issue as openly and honestly as you have. But you say in the end that country agnostic policy approaches might not be appropriate. They might feel politically mm -hmm. correct, but they don't do the right thing for us because they don't define the nature of the problem. Right. Is that just another way of saying, look, China is a problem and you should be open about it and honest about it and get on with it? 
Yeah, I think the politically correct thing for a lot of people is to talk about the problem without identifying the actor. But the PRC is a different actor than Russia, than the Gulf states, than tech companies. And that means that you actually literally can't define the scale of the problem and what areas of policy need to be corrected if you aren't actually identifying who the actor is and what their intent is. Because the technical capabilities to collect bulk data and process that into usable information for influencing a society for security purposes. That side of it is less difficult to understand if you're like reading this paper for the first time, I think, than it is to understand what the intent is. And that's where I think you find differences in approach and then therefore differences in what kind of policy areas need to be addressed, what kinds of things we need to be talking about in order to make sure that we're keeping ourselves safe. Well, Dr. Samantha Hoffman, you've, to use an Australian expression, you've put the wind up me. I hadn't (laughs) realised just how expansive the reach of this was, and I do now, and it should frighten the hell out of people. Samantha Hoffman, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Oh, the soapbox. Well, I'm fully over glibness. Glib people. Yuck. Look, I'm all for a bit of humour. People who take themselves seriously, rather than their jobs seriously, are a pain in the butt. But good humour is not glibness. Glibness is that shallow surfing over life in general. Never really caring much about anything but yourself is, as Daffy Duck would say, despicable. Glibness overlooks the horrors of life, the depths of grief that can overtake us, and the elation of achievement or the sheer unadulterated happiness that can be found all around us. Glib is, I can't be bothered. And if that's how you feel, perhaps the rest of us should just walk on by. Listen to this. We're going to talk about the composer in just a moment. Have you ever thought, hmm, I might write a book one day? And if you have, have you thought of a novel or a biography or a collection of small biographies? Lots of people think I might write a book. Very annoying for authors, of course, for people who've got no knowledge of writing books to announce that they might write a book. I suppose brain surgeons don't have people say to them, I think I might do brain surgery next year. But in fact, in fact, Ian McFarlane, who is best known as one of the former governors of the Reserve Bank of Australia between 96 and 2006, has in fact done just that. He's written a book and it's a collection of mini-biographies, I suppose you'd say. And interestingly, instead of picking well-known people, he's picked 10 remarkable Australians, but he could have said 10 relatively unknown ones. He says they made their mark on the world but were forgotten, but not now. Ian McFarlane, welcome to CounterPoint. Well, thank you very much, Amanda. It's a great idea for a book to have small histories so that people like me who... I don't know if I suffer from attention deficit disorder, but as you rightly point out in your forward, 
you have to be really interested in someone to buy a biography that's sort of 400 pages long. But to buy a book where you can get an insight into 10 interesting people, now that's a real proposition. Well, I agree. I've always liked books of essays, and particularly in this case, books of biographical essays. John Howard said that he enjoyed reading it because he thought each essay was refreshingly different. And I think that word refreshingly is quite good because you read one and maybe it's not 100% to your taste, but the next one will be. So there's always something sort of different to look forward to when you're reading a book like this. Yes. How did you choose some of them? Why did you pick them? That's the crucial question. And the answer is that I've always been a reader of history and biography, mostly international, some Australian. But in the international stuff I read, I could be reading a book that had nothing to do with Australia by an author who was not Australian. And then occasionally an unusual Australian would pop up. Now, the first time this happened was when I was reading a book on Rupert Brooke, their first World War poet. And Kelly... If I should die, think only this of me. Yeah, yeah. And this Australian called Kelly popped up and he was described as a sportsman because he had actually won the Diamond Skulls at Henley three times and the Olympic gold medal. And I thought, that's quite interesting. I'll look into him. And when I looked into him, I discovered that that was only the second string to his bow. He was first and foremost a classical music composer and concert pianist. He'd played with the Sydney Symphony Orchestra, the London Philharmonic Orchestra. I thought, this is an interesting person. I might even look into it further. And then Mm. it didn't take long until I was reading another book about early attempts to climb Mount Everest. And I discovered, to my surprise, that the best mountaineer in the world in the 1920s was an Australian called George Finch. He had climbed higher than anyone had ever climbed at that time. He'd climbed higher up Mount Everest than anyone else ever had. And he could have got a lot higher, except he had to turn back and rescue his distressed companion. And by the way, he was also a professor of chemistry and a fellow of the Royal Society. And a third element here, which is also intriguing, is what was his relationship with Peter Finch, the actor? Was he Peter Finch's father or wasn't he? Peter Finch always thought that George Finch was his father. So here's another fascinating character. And the third one that I came across was a man called Harry Hawker. He was a son of a blacksmith, left school at 14, was a brilliant self-taught intuitive mechanic come engineer. And eventually he went to England, joined the Sopwith Aviation Company, became their chief test pilot, helped to design the famous Sopwith Camel, And then he had another extraordinary adventure. He was the first person to attempt to fly across the Atlantic in 1919. And he took off from Newfoundland Mm -hmm. and everyone knew he'd taken off. A day passed, he hadn't turned up. Two days, he hadn't turned up. Mm -hmm. Eventually, by day six, it was assumed that he was dead. The king sent his condolences to his wife and Banjo Patterson composed a poem in honour of the dead hawker. Eight days after he'd left Newfoundland, he turned up in Scotland. He'd come back from the dead. And it was a triumphant return. He came down to London. Crowds greeted him wherever he went. Went to Buckingham Palace, was invested with an Air Force cross. Now, how did he do it? Well, I'm not going to tell you, but if you read the book, you'll find (laughs) out. (laughs) You'll find out. That's fair enough. 
You're on RN. I'm Amanda Vanstone and I'm talking to Ian McFarlane. Yes, the former governor of the Reserve Bank. We're talking about a book he's written about 10 forgotten Australians. And I'll tell you, it's a great read. So let's go to the only woman you covered. I'm not so particularly interested in why there was only one, but I know her as Henry Handel Richardson. That was a real insight reading that. And one of the things I got out of it was how bloody strong her mother was. Yes, yes. She left her home country to allow her daughters, and one in particular, to pursue a musical career rather than a literary one, and stayed there even though she didn't enjoy it as much as they did, and in fact died there. Yeah, yeah. Now, that's giving up a lot. Yeah, yeah. And not only giving a lot up yourself, it is giving a lot to your daughters, being extraordinarily supportive of them following their musical career, for which at that time it was deemed the smart thing to do to go to Europe. Yeah. Well, she went to Leipzig Conservatorium. This is Henry Handel Richardson, or Etty, as she was always known, went to Leipzig Conservatorium, which, if you were interested in classical music, was the place in the world to go. And the mother took them there, took both the daughters there, and made a home for them for 10 years. Well, mainly in Germany, but sometime in England, but mainly in Germany. When I was reading it, as I read about the father who, you know, trained in medicine and then came here to be a gold miner and a shopkeeper, (laughs) I wasn't any good at that, so I went and did medicine, with varying degrees of success in different towns, and I wasn't of the view that it was there for a very wealthy family. But after he died, I mean, Mum took off and lived for a fair while in Europe, so there must have been some money there somewhere. Yes, I think if you just read the novel or the, the trilogy, you would get the impression that they all ended up in poverty, but that was not the case. There was enough money left, obviously, for the two girls to go to a good private boarding school in Melbourne, Mm. to go overseas first class and then live in Europe at their mother's expense for a decade. So Mm. there was plenty of money still left. Sure. And she made the point in her commentaries that she thought she had a good education. And one of the points that jumped out to me that she was making was that she had the same opportunities as boys did to learn maths and science and classics, etc. In other words, it wasn't a girly education, it was a proper education. Yeah, well, that book, The Getting of Wisdom, it's a small book and an easy read, but that was slightly controversial in Melbourne because it seemed to be putting down the schools she went to, PLC. But then when she came to write Myself When Young, sort of her memoirs, she said it was an excellent school and she got a terrific education. Mm. And she started off her literary career as a translator. I found that interesting. Well, the other thing that intrigued me, the first book she translated was a book written in Danish. Well, she didn't speak Danish, but there was a German translation of the Danish book. Yeah, she did the so third she... level. <laughs> anyway, she survived. She didn't have much success with the first two books in The Fortunes of Richard Marnie, but the third one hit the button with no real explanation of why that was successful and the other two weren't. I know, it's weird, isn't it? It did surprise me because it's the gloomiest of the three and when you read it, you don't know how the characters have developed, why things happened because you hadn't read the earlier two because they were out of print. Mm. But somehow, rather, she fluked it with that book Mm. and that really made her name because not only did that book succeed, they put the three together and that sold quite well. And Mm. so that's how she made her literary reputation through putting the three together, although it's a long book and it's not an easy book to read. Mm. You raised the issue of why she chose to go under a male pseudonym and one option was, well, 
it just might sell more books if it was written by a bloke. The other is that one of the books she wrote, since you mentioned darkness, was particularly dark and she wanted to write it from the perspective of the man about whom she was writing and therefore took upon herself a male name in order to write that book from that perspective, have it seen as that perspective. And apparently was very proud that no one picked it was a woman. Yeah. Why do you think she chose well, to go under a male student? You know, there were nine biographies of her, so I read each person's version of why she did that, because it was very yeah. unusual. Most of the great Australian women writers didn't do it. She was really virtually the only one who did. And I found the explanations very unsatisfactory until I found actually that the best explanation comes from a very modern writer, Germaine Greer, who wrote the introduction to a reprint of The Getting of Wisdom. And according to Greer, in the first book that Richardson wrote, which was called Maury's Guest, she said, Richardson wished to write the story of a degrading sexual obsession from the point of view of its masculine victim. And this would be seen as unconvincing and probably unseemly coming from a female author. So she chose to write it under the male name. Mm. And look, I wanted to t talk briefly about Lyndhurst Faulkner Giblin. He's an interesting character. You describe him as having a dark secret, which you get to towards the end of the biographical essay in the suggestion that he was gay. That would have been a dark secret back then, but, you know, no, 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 no. I was suggesting no. I wasn't suggesting that. I was suggesting a bit more than that, suggesting that what his interests were would be called pederasty. He was oh, only yes. interested yeah. in boys, not in men. No, actually, now that you say that, that's right. You sort of hinted it earlier on. You're a bit of a teaser, really, because earlier on in it you mentioned how he used to often have young men to stay. Yeah, I quoted two authors who made that point, that he was always offering to take the sons of his colleagues away on holidays and things like that. There's no full biography of Giblin, but there are two books that deal with aspects of him, and they're both full of hints. So I had no idea about this, by the way, before I started reading it. I'd heard of Giblin, but I didn't know this aspect of him. And the more I read, the more I could see what the earlier authors were hinting at. And the question was, would I just continue to hint or would I come out and say it bluntly? And in the end, I decided I'd just come out and say it bluntly. Mm, fair enough. Well, he was an interesting character, wasn't he? Because he was a, a sportsman and a good one, a prospector, maybe not so good at that, a couple of goes at that in Canada and particularly unsuccessful. A politician? I mean, when he was a politician, was there not the rule then that you couldn't be a politician if you were bankrupt, if you <laughs> had been a bankrupt? Well, no one knew he had been a bankrupt. I, oh, I, no, yeah. well, I was the first person to discover that. I went through and read his letters from Canada. Oh, so he did have a secret. Uh, well, it was probably himself. a pretty trivial one. My guess is that, you know, gold prospectors, probably half of them went bankrupt. It was a, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's uh, probably right. Yeah. And he was a soldier and... A very successful soldier. Major, yes. Major Giblin, Military Cross and Distinguished Service Order. Yeah, yeah. Had a couple of cracks at it too. He wasn't yeah. just yeah. sent and, off for a brief stint. Yeah, and... As a sportsman, the amazing thing about that is he's a Tasmanian where they play Australian well, rules, as you know, just like South Australia, and he goes to Cambridge and he ends up playing rugby for England. He played three tests, and I find that pretty amazing. So he's a pretty good sportsman as well as being a pretty good soldier, as well as being a member of parliament. And a scholar. And a scholar. And he's actually the most versatile of them all. He seemed to do so many different things. And an economist trusted by both sides of politics and internationally recognised? Well, the other interesting thing about it, he didn't take it up until he was 47. He'd done all oh. these other things. He'd been a scholar, a sportsman, a miner, 
being a Tasmanian, he, was, he also had an apple orchard. <laughs> He'd been a teacher. He'd done all these things, a member of parliament, and then he took up economics in the sense of being the Tasmanian statistician at the age of 47, and he excelled at it. And so within a decade, he was offered the chair of economics at Melbourne University, which he took, and was extremely influential in Australian economics through the 1920s, 30s, and the first half of the 40s. So I would say for about 25 years, he was the leading economist in Australia. Well, Ian McFarlane, you've done everyone a service. You've given them a great Christmas book. But there is another job for you. You're now going to have to write another one because this is such a great read. Go and find more forgotten Australians and do the same thing for them. It's been a great, great opportunity to have a look at this book. Thank Thanks you. for joining us. Well, thank you very much, Amanda. Gee, after this next story, you won't go into a room and just look for the people you know. Ooh, ooh, big mistake. You need nunchi. Look around. What is the secret to happiness and success? I'm not sure that they come together, really. Success in a monetary sense won't make you happy. I mean, who cares, really? But the secret to happiness is important. And our next guest, Yuni Hong, thinks maybe the power of nunchi is it. Now, nunchi is the Korean secret to happiness and success. Joining me now to discuss just that is Yuni Hong, who joins us now from New York. Yuni Hong, welcome to Counterpoint. Thank you so much. So you've written a book, The Power of Nunchi, The Korean Secret to Happiness and Success. That means you better tell us what nunchi is. Sure. So the word nunchi, literally translated from the Korean, means measuring with your eyes. Yeah. So it's kind of like basically an eyeball scan or something. Mm-hmm. And it refers to the Korean art of reading a room. So basically entering a room and sort of perceiving people's thoughts and feelings with the goal of creating harmony. Okay. So if you're well-versed in nunchi, if you go into a room, you don't look around at the first few people there and have a chat with them, find the first person you know and move to them, do you? No, you don't. I mean, most people, you know, when they enter a party or an office, they just hone in on who they think is important, you know, just their boss or just their friends. And this is an okay way to do things. It works perfectly well, but it's not the best way. You mentioned in your introduction something really interesting, which is, is success compatible with happiness? It's frequently that people have one or the other. And the nunchi actually is very practical, and it means that you can actually have both. Excellent. Nunchi, you can use for three things. The first is simply to get along with people. Good. The second is to, you know, in a sort of Machiavellian sense, to get what you want out of people. And the third is to protect yourself from those who mean you harm. Mm. So it's a really, really useful tool. It's using your eyes to radar the room, the whole room. Yes. And get a sense of what is going on in there. Exactly that. I mean, most people know how to do this if they go to a nightclub and they don't usually use it in other contexts. You know, so if you're with your friends or something and go to a nightclub, they get a sense of the whole room. They stand at the door and say, okay, there's the attractive people who yep. look single. There's the attractive people who don't look single or they're not my sexual orientation. There's the bar, et cetera, et cetera. 
And people do that in primitive contexts like mating or where there's something that they instinctively want. But they forget to do it in social contexts where they could yeah. still get something out of it. And the difference between nunchi and just being observant and plugging in is that nunchi, as I said, believes that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And the room is like a play and every part matters. You wouldn't just go to a play and watch the principal actor. You'd watch yeah, everybody, no, just, otherwise you miss I understand. Yeah. You're on RN. This is Counterpoint and I'm Amanda Vanstein. I'm talking with Yuni Hong and we're talking about nunchi. Nunchi, if you don't know about it, you're going to find out about it. It's the Korean secret to happiness and success. Now, apparently Koreans don't talk about you having a good nunchi. It's right. having quick nunchi. Exactly, and that's another thing. That's a very key thing is speed and adaptability. I mean, the Korean culture is very kind of fast-moving, fast-paced culture, and they also hold children accountable from a really young age, specifically three years old, actually, before the age of reason. And they really think that you have to learn this adaptability quickly. You know, it's same as, you know, walking across the street. As a child, you have to look around you to see what's going on and just try not to inconvenience people by standing in the middle of the grocery aisle and making a big ruckus. This requires not just perception, but speed, because if you don't do it when you're there, it's kind of useless in some <laughs> context. Sure. Now, you describe it as the secret weapon of the disadvantaged, and part of that is that women and minorities can use nunchi to work out what's really going on as opposed to what someone tells them. Yes. I mean, I think a lot of people who are from traditionally disadvantaged groups, they hate getting shouted down, so they try to do what everyone else is doing and interrupt and, you know, lean in. And sometimes other people in the office are not receptive to that. Because in order for you to lean in, you're assuming that other people are willing to give you something that they have. Sure. And nobody wants to share, right? It's not really realistic to tell everyone to lean in. But what you can do if you're being shouted down all the time is instead of yelling, use your quiet to your advantage and use everyone's noise to their disadvantage. Yeah, sure. And then yeah. get yeah. the timing right so that your intervention just lands in exactly the right place because of the nunchi exactly. that you've been using. Now, you don't think there's much in the English language that comes really close, do you? You mean you mention empathy and emotional intelligence, but then wisely go on and say the road to hell is paved with empathy. <laughs> so what's the best we can say about the English translation of nunchi? Right. I would say empathy and emotional intelligence are words that have only very recently been thrown around. Mm-hmm. And they're sort of poor relations. I mean, if you're a teacher, you might tell a parent, oh, your child has a great deal of emotional intelligence. And it's sort of a backhanded compliment, isn't it? Nunchi is practical in that sense. It can make you happy and successful. Whereas empathy, the way it's taught in the West, is to sort of just do it to be nice and there's no reward in this life. Or so, you know, empathy is one of these words that I think that when people tell you to be empathetic, a lot of times they're trying to trick you into being obedient. And what you're really doing is if you're being overly empathic, you're inviting narcissists into your life. Um, oh, yes. Everyone knows that narcissists target empathetic people. That's right. They um, and, suck yeah. them up. They just move in there like a sponge. Yeah, well, yeah. To know, them, it's like made off seeing somebody with money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they can't help themselves. Empathy and emotional intelligence, you make this point, and I think it's a good one. Maybe not 
with crystal clarity point out the difference, but empathy and emotional intelligence will tell you who the sociopath is. Right. But it won't save you from them, whereas Nunchi might. Yes, exactly. Emotional intelligence and empathy are important traits to have, and it makes you human and makes you a good person, yeah, and it sets sure. you apart from sociopaths. But it doesn't protect you, whereas Nunchi allows you to stay firmly in your ground, whereas empathy requires that you put yourself in the other person's shoes. You know, if you put yourself in another's shoes, you would do exactly what they would do, even if it's bad. That expression makes no sense. Right. So basically, Nunchi is a way to understand people without moving into the other person's shoes. It's just sort of gathering data in an objective way. Mm. Well, Yuni Hong, I think you've convinced me. I have to go and find The Power of Nunchi, <laughs> The Korean Secret to Happiness and Success, which is published by Penguin. And not only do I have to buy it, I have to read it because I think it's <laughs> probably a great concept. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Well, there's the program for this week, and I hope you join us again next week. In the meantime, if you've got something to say, just go to the ABC website, go to RN, follow the prompts to counterpoint, and give us your feedback. Now, look, we don't mind if it's not substantive. If you want to get, you know, some you-know-what off the liver, and you feel better because of it, you do that. This is Amanda Vanstone saying, until next week, ciao, ciao.